0: The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Mike Farrell, the National Recruiting Director from Rivals, The early signing period begins December 19th, and if this year is anything like last year, the vast majority of FBS prospects will sign way before February. We'll look at which schools have the best classes lined up for the early period, what schools still have a lot of work to do to catch up, what top players are expected to sign next week, and what top players will be holding out until February. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org where you can read all of AP's coverage, and away we go. My guest this week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with Signing Day. We are recording this on uh, Tuesday uh, the 11th, so Signing Day. The early signing period opens in about a week, and I have Mike Farrell from Rivals, the uh, National Recruiting Director joining me. Mike, thanks so much, and let me just dive right in. How do you think this season's early signing period is being approached any differently by coaches now that they have it under their belt for a year. In other words, last year was sort of a learning experience. Have you sensed coaches and programs treating this differently or approaching it differently simply because they they kind of know what to expect now?
1: Yeah, I think they have a comfort level with it now. You're seeing as many early offers as we've always seen, you know, so that hasn't really changed, but you know, pushing for early commitments You know, it seems there's more of that going on than there has been in the past, Um, much more in-season recruiting, which is something that a lot of schools don't like to do. A lot of high schools don't like their kids taking visits during the season, and a lot of programs like to focus on the season and and not as much on recruiting. But with the early signing period, they have to treat, you know, the months of August uh, and especially September, October, November as uh, key recruiting months to get out there to schools and evaluate players and recruit them up. So I think that's one of the big differences. And, you know, it's pretty hectic once the season ends uh, and December 1st comes around so you can start doing those in-home visits. A lot of programs used to wait uh, until January to do their in-home visits with kids, but now they can't do that. They have to get them all done, obviously, before, uh, I believe, the 17th. So it's – Probably sped things up from August to to December for for the most part.
0: So you end up with last year, I think the number was 80 to 85 percent of the scholarships, so to speak, FBS that were available, filled up on the early signing period. So that was already a very high number. And again, if I'm a little off there, you correct me, but it was already a very high number of signings that were going on during the early signing period. So I'd ask, is it possible you'd end up with more or less this year about the same? It was just because last year, again, it was already very high.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be about the same. It was about 80% last year. You know, I think it's going to be very similar to that. You know, you're going to have your kids that weren't able to take official visits or get out to see schools or or talk to coaches as much as they wanted to during the regular season. So they're going to want to wait it out through the holidays and, and take advantage of that in January. But the majority of the kids, you know, most of these classes are filled, probably 90 percent, 85 percent filled. Uh, Most of these kids have been committed for a very long time. So they're just ready to get it over with. So we expected last year it would probably be about 50-50. We were off on that. Um, I think college coaches were off on that as well. So now they know 80 percent of these kids are going to be signing. They're ready for it. And uh, I would expect that number to stay about the same.
0: So with that many kids signing, or we anticipate them signing next week, let me ask you. I ask you about how, how the coaches are maybe approaching this differently and getting comfortable with it. What are the challenges from the high school side of this, with the prospects and the high school coaches, but especially from the prospects? Have you have you noticed prospects sort of changing their game plan? or having to adjust to this in some way. I guess you mentioned the earlier offers that was already being sped up, maybe a little more pressure to sign for the early signing date. But give me the insight on the prospect side of this.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of pressure, especially for those kids who have been committed for a while that still want to look around. December 19th comes around and a school is telling you, you know, listen, if you're really committed to us, you'd sign on the dotted line. And if you're not, we're going to go out and find somebody else. At your position. Um, so I think the pressure is amped up, whereas before kids could just wait it out until February, the first Wednesday of February, and, and just sort of relax with it. They've got to get more visits in. So you see a lot more unofficial visits during the summer. Uh, I think that's become a busier time period. We've got official visits now available in the spring. You're starting to see that be uh, taken advantage of that's something that wasn't available last year but we saw a lot of kids take some official visits during the spring too so a lot of preparation for the kids um, but mostly it's relief you know most of them want this process over with after December 1st when you have can have unlimited contact with kids and, and coaches are showing up at your door unexpected and you know you're just getting barraged with phone calls constantly even if you're committed you just want that to end Um, You want the process over with. You want to enjoy your your senior year as much of it as you can that's left and and, and enjoy the holidays as well. So I think it's just a big relief for a lot of these kids. And uh, even though the pressure's amped up, once they're done, they're pretty excited to be done.
0: Though it should probably be noted, you correct me if I'm wrong, the pressure tends to get ramped up on – the kids who aren't the five stars, right? The fives and the fours, and the and the really most coveted kids, I would think, have a sort of more chips on their plate. In other words, they they have a little more leverage to say, "No, I want to wait," and I know you're gonna um, you're gonna let me wait because you really want me, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, they've got leverage. Obviously, you'll try to strong arm them, and you know they are kids, and if they don't have you know uh, a good foundation of of leadership, whether it's parents or, or guardians or a high school coach, you know they could sort of fall into that a bit, uh, even though they they kind of hold all the cards. I mean, no one's going to walk away from the number two player in the country. You know, who's, it happens to be a, a running back that you've been recruiting for three years. If he's not going to sign, you're you're going to wait until February for that kid. But he doesn't need to know that. um you know you can sort of bluff your way through it a little bit but for the three stars you know the the kids with seven eight offers uh some of the four stars you know who who don't have a, a ton of offers maybe 15 offers um a lot of schools are filled up right now so you know they don't have a lot of leverage in that respect where they could say well i'm not ready to sign i'm gonna go look at my second and third choice, those schools might be done at your particular position. And if they are, you're out of luck. So you better sign. So that's where they really get squeezed. But I don't think those kids mind being squeezed, honestly. It's it's the the kids that get caught up in the whole process who have 50 offers and everybody's telling them they're the greatest player they've ever seen. Those type of guys tend to get caught up in the process quite a bit and, and, and want to extend it
0: so we I said, we are recording this about a week away from the early signing period opening up. You said most of the kids who take advantage of this are kids who have been committed for a while. A lot of times in February, what would be interesting around that let- you know that last push towards signing day is you'd have a half dozen a dozen you know those sort of high profile kids and who would be making their decision on the February signing day, and you'd end up with a lot of uh, media coverage coalescing around, you know, again, a dozen or so very high-profile kids. Because this signing date is tends to be for the kids who already have known where they're going and going for a while, do we have any drama over the next week where you have high-profile players who have said, yes, I will sign in the early signing period, but I don't know where I'm going yet.
1: Yeah, there's quite a few of those guys still out there. You know, the tricky part has been, you know, everybody wants to announce on television. So mm-hmm. now, obviously, ESPN is doing an early signing period, uh, big show on December 19th, and they're also doing their February show. But not everybody can fit into that broadcast. The All-Star Games are, are the interesting part here because – the, the All-American game, which used to be the Army All-American game, and, and the Under Armour game, you know, they used to have a lot of kids declaring. So what you've got is you've got some kids that are undecided, uncommitted, who might try to sign secretly, which there are no secrets in recruiting. So if, <laughs> right. if they do that, it'll get out and then try to make their announcement on national television during one of those all-star games, or they might just delay their decision even though they know where they're going so they can get that moment on television as well. So, um, but we've got, we've got some drama, you know, there's some kids, you know, our number two player in the country, Trey Sanders running back out of IMG Academy in Florida. He's undecided. He's going to probably sign next Wednesday. Um, You know, you move down to our number 10 player, Kayvon Thibodeau, who's a defensive end from California, he's probably going to sign. Evan Neal, an offensive tackle from IMG, is number 11 in the country. He's going to sign. And, you know, we really don't know where they're going. Um, You know, we thought Trey Sanders and, and Evan Neal were blocks for Alabama, and then they just took a visit to Georgia with their teammate and good friend Nolan Smith, who's been committed to the Dogs for a very, very long time. And now the way they're playing it on social media is like you just don't know Whether they've changed their mind and they're going to Georgia, whether they're going to stick with uh, Alabama, which was their favorite for a long time. kid like Thibodeau, you don't know if he's going to stay out west or go to the southeast. So there's still a lot of drama. There'll still be surprises. Just not as many because, again, you don't have the full allotment of kids announcing on one day.
0: Who among the very highly rated players, let's say fives or even very high four stars, do you know? We're not seeing this kid's decision until February.
1: Um, a few kids have already told us that. You know, Jaden Hasselwood is a wide receiver from Georgia who was committed to Georgia at one point in time. He's going to wait until the All-Star game, so he's going to do it in early January. Uh, that doesn't mean anything. You know, if he, if he verbally commits on television, he could change his mind any time up to February. So mm-hmm. his recruitment could be very dramatic. Because uh, I don't think he knows where he wants to go. You know, he was committed to Georgia. He likes Miami. He likes Florida State. He's going to visit Tennessee. He's, you know, back looking at Georgia again. Um, Darnell Wright, the top offensive tackle in the country out of West Virginia, has only taken one visit. He wants to take all five of his official visits, so he's probably going to be an announcement on signing day. Uh, Brew McCoy, number one athlete in the country out of California. A lot of people think he's going to go to USC, but he doesn't want to sign early. Um, so he's going to have to you know, go through the process, take all his visits. You know, those are top-10 caliber players um, that just are not ready to sign at this point in time. Chris Steele another one, a cornerback out of California, who has already committed to USC, um, and then he had previously committed to UCLA, Now he's probably going to end up in the Southeast Conference, but we don't know where he's going to announce at the All-Star Game as well. Zach Harrison, a five-star from Ohio, defensive end is going to decide later as well. So there's a lot of them out there. Um, You know, most of them will announce at the All-Star Games, but like I said, that doesn't matter, that you're not signing at the All-Star Game. I've seen so many kids put on a hat in San Antonio or Orlando, and then three weeks later, you know decommit and go to a different school so that's the difference next week when they sign it's over nothing you can do but after that you know the next time you can sign is february so you can commit six times if you want to between between december and february
0: when are the all-star games what are the dates on those
1: january 5th looks like it's going to be the Army one. Mm -hmm. It's not the Army one anymore, of course, but it's the All-America game. And that's where most of the kids are going to make the decisions. I'm not sure who's ready to announce their decision. And that's in Uh, San Antonio, that one. That one's in San Antonio, yeah. And then the other one is January 3rd in Orlando. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the kids that I'm tracking right now that are five stars are going to announce it, the All-American Bowl in San Antonio. Jaden Hasselwood, who I mentioned. Bruce McCoy, who I mentioned. Chris Steele, who I mentioned. And a few other kids are looking to make their announcement uh, at that game itself and then sign in February.
0: Now, I would think, though, again, this is my intuition, but maybe it's not, that with the early signing period, you wouldn't get necessarily a bunch of flips coming up next week. But are you eyeing any players who you think are committed or have said they're, you know, hard commit, whatever you want to call it, soft commit? but that you're sort of keenly interested in seeing if they sign where they are committed come next week, not February, but come, you know, December 19th.
1: That's one of the things that's sort of been eliminated by the early signing period. Not as much intrigue when it comes to last second flips. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the reason for that is obviously with an early signing period, the coaches are getting their ducks in a row and, and they've got some leverage as opposed to all the leverage being with the kid Uh, in the past, you know, the prospect himself could lie to coaches, take visits, uh, and then wait until that Wednesday in February and just flip. Uh, There's so much more communication that's going on with this early signing period that I don't see a lot of guys doing that. You know, there's a few kids out there that are committed. You know, we were tracking Nolan Smith. That's a good example of a kid that, You know, we were looking at Owen Popo is another one, a linebacker from Georgia who was set to flip from Auburn to Tennessee. Uh, But with the in-home visits now occurring a lot earlier, you know, Gus Malzahn got in the house of Owen Popo, and that was it. Tweeted out 100% committed to Auburn, not going to flip, blah, blah, blah. Same with Nolan Smith. Just tweeted out that he's sticking with Georgia, even though Alabama was coming after him really hard. So I think the early – In home visits are are getting rid of a lot of that dramatic flipping that used to occur.
0: At least in the early part, we'll see what happens. It seemed like there will be; there'll probably always be some flips around that February date, though. The kids who are the 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 players who are uncommitted going into that February date, I would imagine you'll still get enough flips to make people interested on that signing date.
1: Yeah, there's not a lot of incentive to commit between December nineteenth and and the first Wednesday of February, Mm -hmm. so we might not have as many flips as, as as we previously had, you know? Oh, that's an interesting that way. Yeah.
0: To put it, you're not necessarily getting the flips, but what you're doing is kids who have decided like, well, I've still got a month and a half. What's the sense of committing now?
1: Right. There's no point getting caught up in it and committing on a visit and then decommitting the next week and then committing to somebody else the week after that is it's sort of taken away that now that you've split it in two, you're either going to commit and sign early or you're going to wait until the very last second. And I think that's the way it's going to shake out.
0: Okay. We are uh, talking with Mike Farrell from Rivals. He is the National Recruiting Director on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We're going to take a very quick break and be back with more with Mike right after this. And we're back with Mike Farrell from Rivals breaking down signing day, which is only – well, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday the 11th, so we're about a, a little more than a week away from the early signing period in college football. It sort of changed the landscape of recruiting last year. And now, it, it's funny, it was such a monumental thing last year What they had been talking about it for so long. And now, a year later, it sort of seems normal, right? It only took a year for it to seem normal. Before I ask you about some teams, we talked a lot about players and who might be flipping and deciding in the next couple weeks or waiting until February. I know you've had a lot of different thoughts on what this should be. I seem to remember you saying you thought this was a good step, this early signing period. Do you think we'll ever see one more put in there, maybe an earlier one in the summer?
1: No, I don't think. I think you could see the December one moved potentially to august that was my original proposal and thought you know that the early signing period should be in august just because if you want to get rid of all the the nuisance of recruiting for a kid that's able to take on official visits and can afford to do that and and obviously now you've got official visits in the spring let them sign in august so they don't have to deal with that at all during the football season, during their senior year, and just be a kid. Um, They still have to go through September 1st where colleges can visit you, you know, uh, once a week, and they can contact you once a week, and you're still handling numerous phone calls and uh, constant uh, Twitter DMs and things like that, whereas if you're signed uh, in August that goes away and it, it just sort of allows you to really enjoy your senior season. But I don't think there'll be three, you know, basketball has two, you know, that's worked well for quite some time. It's funny. Basketball had two for so many less prospects and football has had one forever for so many more prospects because you're talking about, you know, a hundred plus FBS schools signing 25 kids mm-hmm. um, you would think it would have been done by now, uh, but I, I could see the date moving up because December 19th and the first Wednesday in February, not that far apart. You're mm-hmm. not getting that much of a break from the recruiting process by signing early. You're getting a break, but August would really give you a good break.
0: I would also think that if you did an August one, that's where you might end up with the 50/50 split again maybe not sometimes i you know i think that the thought has always been behind the scenes with the ad's and the administrators who worked on this is whenever they put the early signing period would become the signing period it certainly happened that way with the december signing period but i could see if it's august that is awfully early that you would really just be eliminating the kids who have been basically committed since middle of their junior year, like the kids who are really locked in. And I would imagine that might cut down the, the total amount of commits, but you really end up with the ones who are very firm and you take them off the board. And plus you give them, again, what you're trying to give them, which is sort of a calm senior season.
1: Yeah, the downside to it is, of course, the coaching carousel. You know, people say... Well, if you have one in August, what if the coach leaves? What if the offensive coordinator you love that you committed to takes another job, gets a head coaching position someplace else? There's no real allowance for adjustment. And if you I know, could just and, interrupt and you, Mike,
0: is, you know, they did already, and they did put in some new rules saying that if, if your coach leaves after you've signed, if you're a recruit, not your assistant coach, which is in some ways more valuable or the person you're more close with, but uh, if there's a head coaching change after you sign, they're talking about now being able to release that letter.
1: Yeah. And I think they would have to do that if they moved it up to August, obviously. And, and again, it would have to be the head coach. Um, The problem with that is the head coach does the least amount of recruiting right? and the relationships you build are with your position coach and your geographical coach and, and all that stuff, the guy you're going to spend 95% of your time with. So, there's so much movement. I mean, not as much this year as there was last year. Last year, the coaching carousel was absolutely crazy um, that, you know, a lot of kids would be stuck. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is a downside to that. That's the one argument against August that everybody seems to have. But those kids that committing to a school, you know, and, and have done their research and know where they want to go and what they want to study, and they still have that opportunity to commit. And if the coach changes... I mean, honestly, and these kids don't believe it or know it, but in your four or five years of college, somebody's going to leave. Whether yes, it's the head coach no or it's an assistant coach you like or your position coach, somebody's out. There's too much movement. But they don't believe that. They believe that these guys are going to be there for all four or five of the years. So that's why they kind of want to wait and, and see what happens. But I, I would say, you know, the kids that are truly ready, it would definitely cut down on that number of early Signings probably closer to that fifty percent range, like you mentioned, because of the coaching carousel, they don't want to get locked in.
0: All right, so let's talk about some teams and the rankings that rivals has, which is right now going into uh, next week. Alabama's number one, a And M's two, Georgia's number three, Clemson, Texas round out the top five. I'm interested of let's say top ten schools. Which ones do you think are most likely to slide out of the top ten? either next week or maybe even better projecting towards February?
1: You know, usually the way I do this is I take a look at the number of commitments they have and then their average star ranking because what we do is we take the top 20 kids in a class, the highest ranked 20, we rank them so it's fair. So that Alabama, if they sign 28 and and Georgia signs 20, Mm -hmm. you've got an even playing field. Mm -hmm. There's no advantage to Alabama signing eight additional kids. These are all very impressive average star rankings up top here. I mean, it's really good. I would say Michigan at number 10 probably is most likely to fall out, uh, and that makes sense, obviously, Mm -hmm. since they are number 10. Notre Dame with 21 commitments, uh, 3.62 average star ranking, might fall out as well as others move up. But most of these schools seem pretty entrenched in this top 10.
0: The one I, that I, jumps out is Oregon only because we've seen, obviously Ellison and Alabama is there every year. You hire Jimbo Fisher at A&M to get these type of recruiting. So A&M is not that surprising. Georgia Clemson, obviously Herman had a great year last year, LSU, but Oregon at seven, even in Chip Kelly's heyday, Oregon didn't have a whole lot of top 10s. So give me a word or two on Oregon and how much damage they expect to do. Do they expect to have a lot of that locked up next week when the early signing period begins?
1: Yeah. I mean, they hope to get the cave on Thibodeau kid who's number one in the country for some people and number 10 for us, that would be the highest ranked player in their class. It would certainly raise their points and, and, and probably keep them in the top 10, but most of the guys that they've got committed are pretty solid. Uh, planning on signing early they've only got 19 commitments so again the next commitment counts towards the point total for them it's a surprising class because you don't expect oregon to be in the top 10 you expect usc to be in the top 10 and they're nowhere even close to the top 10. we're just so used to seeing the trojans up there but mario cristobal is a great recruiter uh obviously recruited at alabama and has ties to florida so it's a class that's filled with kids from the southeast as well as from California. Most of them appear solid. 3.74 average star ranking. You know, unless they lose some kids, I mean, it's higher than Texas. It's higher than LSU. It's higher than Clemson. Um, you know, it's higher than Notre Dame and, Oklahoma, and uh, Michigan. So they're in really good shape to stay in the top ten, especially if they can land Thibodeau, which is if you do look at the top ten, you expect Alabama. You expect Georgia, you expect Clemson, you expect Texas, LSU. Um, I would say Texas A&M is a surprise at number two, although Jimbo is a very, very good recruiter and does a great job there. And you would expect Notre Dame and Oklahoma and Michigan to round it out. So Oregon is that outlier, but I think they're going to stay in the top ten.
0: I got to ask you this only because they are SEC schools who had coaching changes last year and have been down a little bit late recently, but eleven and twelve is Arkansas and Tennessee. Tennessee, I can sort of understand, because even in some of the years where they weren't playing well, they were generally looking pretty good in the recruiting rankings under Butch Jones. How is Chad Morris doing this at Arkansas?
1: It's relationships. You know, I mean, he obviously comes from the high school ranks. He's done a really good job recruiting Texas. Um, They've done a good job keeping some of the top kids that they want at home. Uh, Hunter Henry's younger brother, Hudson Henry, is the – You know, probably the biggest name in this class from Arkansas. Uh, You know, there's family ties there, so that helped. But he's gone into Louisiana, taking a defensive back out of there. He's gone into Tennessee, taking a wide receiver out of there. Relationships. He's a very good recruiter. He knows what he's doing. This is a somewhat historic class for Arkansas, especially when you consider their record. I mean, for them to be anywhere near the top ten is ridiculous right now. So if this speaks to the way he can recruit, Uh, And if he can coach a lick at the SEC level, Arkansas could make some noise in a few years. But it's going to be really hard for them to continue this success because what happens is with success, you have to have on-field success. You have to show that you're progressing. Like Kentucky. Kentucky is a great example. They've been showing that they've been progressing and the recruiting rankings have sort of uh, reflected that. Uh, Arkansas needs to have that same sort of trajectory as Kentucky and that's going to be hard to do on the field. But he's he's done a great job. That's probably, when you look at the top 25, it's probably, you know, the one school that you're most surprised is that high and, and is in there because they're normally in the 30 to 35 range.
0: Which school notably will have work to do after the early signing period to sort of recoup the class or to to get to the point where they would normally be ranked?
1: I'd say USC is the number one. I mean, normally USC's ranked, you know, somewhere outside the top 20 at this stage because California kids tend to wait longer, but they've usually got a ton of five-star kids that are ready to commit. Just We know they're going to commit to USC, uh, but they haven't pulled the trigger yet. It's not the case this year. Obviously, this season has hurt. Uh, Clay Helton's job status is hurt. You know, USC is one of the easiest places in the country to recruit because you've got such a home state advantage and it's such a big brand. So for them to have 16 commitments right now, 3.19 average star ranking is really horrible. Miami's class is pretty weak as well. They've got a lot of work to do. They've lost so many commitments over the year. I think double-digit guys were committed at one point and then decommitted from Miami. Miami. Uh, You would expect them to be higher than 33rd right now, so they've got a lot of work to do as well. Um, But mostly, you know, the big schools are where they belong. Um, You know, some of the other schools that could move up, Florida, you could see them moving up from 21. They're usually higher than that. Florida State from 17, they're usually higher than that. Ohio State up from 15 because they're always higher than that as well. Uh, But mostly the top 10 is what you'd expect except for Oregon. Uh, And then the second tier, I think you'll see some schools, you know, moving up and some schools with a lot of work to do. But USC and Miami stand out to me as the two schools that need to do the most work.
0: Is there anything to read into Ohio State being down around 15? I mean, the star ranking is still pretty good at 3.75. Obviously, they've got some uncertainty, though, that's been taken care of now. It's no longer uncertain. We know Urban Meyer is not coming back. We know who the coach is going to be. Uh, Is there a possibility of a surge here at Ohio State? Was the Urban Meyer uncertainty hurting Ohio State by some chance?
1: Well, there's negative recruiting out there, obviously. And, uh, you know, I think Michigan's done a good job recruiting this year. They've been a thorn in their side a little bit. Penn State's done a good job recruiting as well. Um, The Midwest isn't as talented as it has been in the past. Um, And they haven't been able to have as much success in the Southeast. So I think that's honestly... You know, Urban Meyer is the best recruiter I've ever covered. It includes Nick Saban. He just has a way of closing on kids that they're never supposed to get. Their top two kids are from Georgia and Texas. Their next highest rated kids from Florida. They just recruit nationally. Um, but every year he also pulled a few rabbits out of the hat that you just were stunned. It just wasn't going to happen. Whether it was Baron Browning or Jeffrey Okuda from from texas or you know obviously stealing the Boses away from alabama because that was their first love was alabama but i don't know if that's going to happen this year um ryan day is a good recruiter but there's a drop off i mean urban meyer is urban meyer and you know when you look at these guys like zach harrison who's an in-state kid who's torn between michigan and ohio state right now he could very well go to michigan and i can tell you if Urban Meyer was there and there was no questions about his health or his potential retirement, that would not be the case. They would be leaning very heavily for Zach Harrison right now. So I think, you know, the uncertainty um, has played into it, and other schools taking advantage of that has certainly impacted their class.
0: Okay, last quick one, and it's two teams coming off of bad seasons, though bad seasons in a different way. Nebraska had a bad season but finished pretty strong and at least gave their fans some hope that Scott Frost is on the way. They're sitting at 16 right now. Florida State had a bad season, looked like a dead dog at the end of the season, which made the anxiety in Tallahassee even higher for Willie Taggart. Now, both of those guys look like they're putting together pretty good classes. What do you see them doing to sort of like shore up their situations and give their fans hope for a better tomorrow?
1: Well, Florida State... To me, you know, it's such a brand name and they have such a strong recruiting base uh, geographically. They're always going to be rated high. Even some of the down years under Bobby Bowden, they were rated high uh, because kids just they want to go to Florida State. They want to go to Florida. They want to go to Miami. They grew up dreaming of going to one of the big three, and that's where they're going to end up. So I think Florida State's going to be fine when it comes to gathering talent. I think. He inherited a roster with a lot of talent, um, but Jimbo sort of gave up on that team prior to the middle of the season. You know, recruiting was down. There just wasn't a lot of effort put in. I think Jimbo Fisher knew he was gone, and he was just sort of, you know, mailing it in a little bit there. And when your character and, and, and chemistry on your football team doesn't come together, it doesn't matter how much talent you have, you're just not going to play hard, and you could see them quitting during games because these are kids that are used to winning and not really fighting through adversity. So I'm not worried about Florida state talent wise. I'm worried if Willie Tiger can get this team chemistry together and get them to fight and play hard, you know, for a full football game, you know, 12 weeks out of the year Uh, with Nebraska. I don't have that worry at all. Scott Frost is a great motivator. Um, They don't have a great home recruiting base. Obviously Mm -hmm. they have to go out into California, they have to go into Texas, they have to go into the Southeast, they have to go into the Midlands and into the Midwest and try to steal kids away out of their home states, and that's going to be difficult for them. But I think he's a guy who can do it without having to finish in the top 25 every year in recruiting because he's so good at developing talent. So if I had to pick one of those programs that's in better shape right now, you know, I would pick Nebraska because I'd much rather have a talent – developer than Mm -hmm. just a guy who can recruit Um, because as we see sometimes you can have a roster full of five stars and four stars and you can still stink and i don't think that's ever going to be the case with nebraska but they're not going to get those four and five stars gotcha
0: mike farrell is the national recruiting director for rivals it is a busy time of the year for him I appreciate you taking a solid half an hour or so here, Mike, to get us uh, caught up on what to expect on signing day next week. Thanks so much, and uh, good luck the rest of the way. All right, thanks. And now, three and out, first down. Bowl season begins Saturday, December 15th, with a handful of games mostly involving Group of Five teams, But it really is one of my favorite days of the bowl season because I will have some time to sit back and watch without really having a ton of work responsibilities. Pretty cool for me. Last week, I previewed all the bowls on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with poll voter Matt Brown from The Athletic. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I would suggest you do. We cover a lot of ground. Something to watch for in the bowls from our pal, Chris Falika, the bear of ESPN. Last season, there were six teams in early games that were playing through coaching changes. Those teams went one in five in their bowl games, with the lone exception being Florida State, which was a huge favorite when it beat Southern Miss. The first day of the bowl season has a very good Utah State team playing with an interim coach in the New Mexico Bowl against North Texas, and Appalachian State, which lost Scott Satterfield to Louisville, faces Middle Tennessee in the New Orleans Bowl. Second down. So Kansas hired 65-year-old Les Miles, who has had a long relationship with KU's AD, Jeff Long. North Carolina hires 67-year-old Mack Brown, who has known UNC's AD Bubba Cunningham for years and was really backed by Tar Heels Boosters? Kansas State hires North Dakota State's Chris Kleiman, who worked with K State AD Gene Taylor when Taylor spent 15 years at North Dakota State. Maryland hired Mike Loxley. Because he was a popular pick among boosters, alumni, and some local politicians, Loxley had previously served as an assistant coach at Maryland. Georgia Tech hired Jeff Collins away from Temple in part because he is from near Atlanta and had worked for Georgia Tech. Fans and media spend a lot of time speculating about coaching hires, talking about whether Coach X is better than Coach Y, Is job X better than job Y? But when it comes down to the actual hiring, fit, comfort level, and familiarity play a huge role. Third down, the AP All-America team came out early this week. I think our panel does a great job of trying to be thorough. But even with three teams, we can't fit all the deserving players. I don't vote, but I do pick the voters. We count them up. I occasionally break ties. And if there's a really egregious omission, I might add a player to the team. I didn't feel the need to do that this year. But here are the players I would have made room for on one of the three teams had I had the option to do so. And for full accountability, I even included the player I would have taken off the team. So the list goes like this. I'd have had Arizona State receiver Nikhil Harry on the third team, most likely, and replaced West Virginia receiver David Sills. I would have had Ole Miss offensive tackle Greg Little, probably on the second team bumping George's Andrew Thomas, though that was a really close call. Maybe I would have bumped Washington State's Andre Dillard from the third team, but I did feel like Little needed to be on one of those three teams. He might be the number one offensive tackle taken in the draft. I would have had three defensive ends on the teams that didn't make it. BC's Zach Allen, Florida State's Brian Burns, and Michigan State's Kenny Willekes. Now, defensive end might have been the most loaded position this year, so it was really tough to bump guys. But since I have to, I would have bumped Michigan's Chase Winovich, Florida's Ja'Kai Polite, and Louisiana Tech's Jalen Ferguson. I would have taken Oregon guard Shane Lemieux instead of Wisconsin's Michael Dieter. At center, I think I would have had Elton Jenkins from Mississippi State over Ohio State's Michael Jordan or maybe over Alabama's Roche Piercebacker, who was actually our first team guy. But I, I think I might have had Elton Jenkins somewhere on there instead of one of those two guys. UCLA tight end Caleb Wilson would have gotten my spot on the team. Probably over Noah Fant, the Iowa tight end, who is third team. Now, Fant's a great player and possibly a first-round draft pick. So is Wilson. I thought Fant maybe was a little underused by Iowa this season. I would have had Clemson's Dexter Lawrence on the third team instead of Ed Oliver from Houston. Defensive tackle also loaded this season. And Ed Oliver is terrific, but he also missed four full games. And that's a lot for a guy to be an All-American. I would have gone Utah linebacker Chase Hansen on the third team at least and probably taken Northwestern's Patty Fisher off. Stanford cornerback Paulson Adebo would have been my pick on the third team, probably over Lavert Hill of Michigan. Yeah, maybe I would have taken Hamp Cheevers of Boston College. Those were the two third-team cornerbacks. I would have made a room for Paulson Adebo on there as well. So that's it. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Podcast One. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.